Well, good evening. My name is John McCombs, and it is uh, wonderful to be with you. Uh, some of you may not know this. I'm a full-time teacher at Trinity Christian School, but I'm a part-time teacher, or a part-time pastor here at City Reform. So, uh, and I'm really looking forward to the summer. We had graduation this weekend, and uh, we have some finals to finish up this week, and then, and then we're done. Uh, and so then I can, I can be a, a part-time pastor, and, and that's it. So. Uh, and please don't throw anything at me right now. I know most of your work continues all year round, full time, right? So I get a little bit of a break in the summer, uh, and I'm going to enjoy it. So, uh, but I enjoy uh, being here with you guys and uh, spending time in God's Word tonight. We're going to be looking at Psalm 116. We've been going through the Psalms in the evening, and I think I've uh, preached on 114, 115, and 116 now over the course of the last few weeks. I think there was a slight break. Uh, in there, but tonight, uh, Psalm 116, uh, as is our custom here in, at City Reform in both the morning and evening service, after I read God's word, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can reply uh, with uh, thanks be to God. Okay? So let's hear God's word now together. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, Lord, we come before you now, and we come desiring to hear from you. Lord, we pray that you'll be pleased to speak, uh, even this evening, uh, through your broken vessel. And Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord, hearts that are open to your word, Father, hands and feet that are ready to go live it out. And we pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure at some point in your life, you've had the experience of needing a little bit of money. I think everyone can relate to the experience of needing 
Maybe just a little bit of money at one time or another. Maybe you can relate to the experience of needing a lot of money. And here's what I mean by that. You might need to borrow just $5 from a friend for, for lunch because you forgot it that day. Uh, you might have a little more, uh, little more of the month left and not enough money. And so you need a couple hundred bucks to get by. The car might break down, and, and it's really not worth putting any more money into, but you don't have money for the next one. Uh, so you might take out a loan because you need, I don't know, five or six or eight grand or ten grand or twenty if you get something new. Not many people have that much money set aside. Uh, you might need a little money to buy a house. I don't know too many people who pay cash for houses. Okay, it can happen. So you might need to take out a big loan. So we've all gone through the experience of having to borrow some money from someone else. Let's just take that home loan example. Let's say you need about $100,000, right? You need $100,000. That can get you, uh, in many neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, quite a nice house. In others, it won't get you the back porch on the house. So that's the city we live in. Uh, but you might need, let's say, $100,000. We're gonna ask some questions before you take out that loan, most likely. And you're gonna wanna know what it costs to repay that loan. You're going to want to know what it costs up front, because you've got to have that money, and you're probably going to want to know what it's going to cost over the life of the loan. So you're going to have to look at all those variables, right? Those interest rates and those closing costs and the terms, and, and is it going to be a 10-year loan or a 15 You're going to look at all that. You want to know what it's going to cost, right, if someone gives you something, if you're indebted to them and what it's going to cost you to pay it back. Well, the psalm uh, speaks in the first half greatly about our indebtedness to God and what he has done for us. And then it tries to answer the question, how can we repay the Lord for so great a salvation? So we'll be looking at that uh, tonight. Interestingly, this psalm and, um, in the Septuagint is broken up into a couple different psalms and even some older Hebrew manuscripts. And we're going to treat this as just one psalm. I think it fits real well as just one psalm together. Because even where they break it up is a little bit different sometimes. Right after verse 8, sometimes after verse 10, sometimes after uh, verse 12. Uh, so I think there's integrity in this psalm. I think it's one psalm. I think it has one cohesive message. And I think it's focused on how can we repay the Lord. When we enter this psalm, one of the first things we realize very quickly is that its author is in the midst of a life-threatening situation. Here are the words of verse 3. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Now, the writer of this psalm is unknown. If you look at older commentators... Uh, perhaps uh, Matthew Henry or John Calvin, as they talk about it, they'll just say David. They'll say, David's saying this, David's doing that. The psalm doesn't really say David anywhere. <laughs> it doesn't have a, uh, an inscription in front of it saying a psalm. It doesn't say that. Uh, so I think we don't know who this is. Most modern commentators uh, won't really pick anyone in particular. Okay? Uh, but for a time, many people thought it, it was David. I'm not going to go that route. I think we can leave it unknown. Certainly the circumstances of the psalm are unknown. Even if it's David, our minds can start to run to a few scenarios that this might kind of fit, um, but uh, I don't think we need to do that. So we don't really know uh, decisively who the author is. Uh, we don't necessarily know the circumstances of the psalm. The information that we have is scarce. But what we do know is that this person is in the snares of death. They have encompassed this writer. 
the pangs of Sheol have laid hold of him. I think they're using these terms interchangeably. It's not saying two different things. It's just saying the same thing in, in two different ways. Sheol, really just the old, I think here, it can mean a couple different things in the Old Testament, but I think here it just plainly means the Old Testament place of the dead, where people go when they die. Uh, and so I, I think uh, there's some great wisdom from Derek Kidner as he helps us, an Old Testament commentator, to think about just this, this verse right here uh, in Old Testament poetry and how it talks about death and Sheol. He has this to say. In Old Testament poetry, death and Sheol are aggressive. In Old Testament poetry, death and Sheol are aggressive, clutching at the living to waste them with sickness or crush them with despondency. He goes on to say, so the singer's plight uh, may equally have been a desperate illness or a wounding and disillusioning experience. And then further he says, like Job, could well have been both together. So we don't know the exact circumstances, but it sure sounds life-threatening. So in the face of this insurmountable obstacle, what is the psalmist to do? Well, he's to call upon the name of the Lord. That's what we see him do in verse 4. Then I called on the name of the Lord, and he calls, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. The psalmist is praying for deliverance, plain and simple. We might ask ourselves, what other options did he have? We might even be tempted to look back at, you know, maybe 2,500 years ago if this psalm was written 3,000 years ago and think that he didn't have any other options. Right? It's not like he could just call 911 if he's really sick. An ambulance was not coming to his door. Uh, he couldn't just get an appointment uh, with his doctor you know, that evening or run to an emergency room. Uh, he couldn't run to MedExpress down the way. Now, I'm not saying to you, if you're sick, don't do those things. I think they're very good things to do. Uh, but I think we can also learn from the psalmist who called upon the name of the Lord. But let's not think just because he didn't have modern medicine or modern technology that he did not have other options. He could have called on many other things. He could have called upon diviners and sorcerers through, throughout Israel. Uh, and I don't want to overstate the case, but we see in the days of many other kings, there were diviners and sorcerers, and, and some of those kings even went to those diviners and sorcerers for wisdom, for help, when they were in the throes of death. Could have cried out to a number of false gods. The gods from the nations around them, the gods that they were still cherishing in their own hearts. So the psalmist here could have called on a whole number of things, but he calls on the name of the Lord because his ultimate trust is in the Lord. So when we make that call to the emergency room, we need to also remember to make that call spiritually to the Lord. When we make that call to MedExpress, we need to remember to also make that call to the Lord. I'll ask you, who do you call upon when you're in the proverbial valley of the shadow of death. Oftentimes, God, in His grace, will use difficult situations like this to jar us, uh, to prompt us to call upon His name. And why does He do that? Why does He take difficult life circumstances, even life-threatening situations, to prompt us to call upon Him? Well, we see our answer in verses 1 and 2, because God is pleased to hear our pleas for mercy. God is pleased to hear our pleas for mercy. Verse 1 and 2 say, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. 
Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. See, the psalmist here can't help but express his love for God. He can't help but express that in light of God hearing his request and God responding. He called upon the name of the Lord and God heard, so he vows to continue to call upon the name of the Lord all the days of his life. If I could sing for you, I would, because there are great notes of celebration here, but that's not my gift. If my children ever know or learn how to sing, you know it will not be because of me, and you know who it will be because of. Uh, that is my better half. But there are great notes of celebration because the psalmist has a testimony to tell. He has a story to tell about what has happened in his life. And in fact, I think not only does he have a story to tell about what's happening in this life-threatening situation, he's meditating on another song of God. Because these words here uh, are from, uh, in verses 8 and 9, are really a quote of Psalm 56, verses 12 and 13. They're almost a direct quote. And that was an instance in which David was fleeing from the Philistines and God had delivered him. Perhaps that's why some older commentators just say David here. But I don't think because one psalm quotes another, which is rare, that the same person necessarily wrote them. So as we uh, look at verses 8 and 9, we hear this. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And I think what verse 8 is doing here, uh, it, it appears to me that it's inviting us to really do the same, to recount our deliverance by God. Maybe we haven't been in a life-threatening situation where we've called out to the Lord. But we probably have been in a situation where we've called out to the Lord for deliverance from tears. We probably have been in a situation where we've called out to the Lord to deliver our feet from stumbling. Or we may have been in a situation uh, for the Lord to, to call out to him to pick us up after we have stumbled. But the message here seems to broaden a little bit, seems to invite those who are in the congregation of God's people to sing along with the psalmist, to relate to him, to relate to what it is he has feeling here, or he is feeling here. And if you've ever called upon the Lord through tears, if you've ever called upon him to keep you from stumbling, then I submit that you can relate to what the psalmist is feeling in this psalm. If you've called upon him through tears and he has answered, then you know what this psalmist is talking about. And you also then not only have a testimony about God and what he's done for you, but you have a testimony about who God is himself. We see in verses 5 through 7, the psalmist doesn't just talk about what God has done, but he talks about who God is is God always acts in ways that are consistent with his character and his nature. So when God does something for you that is good and gracious, he does those because he is good and gracious. Verses 5 through 7 say, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. In verses 5 through 7 here, we hear the psalmist piling words of praise upon the Lord, things that he had experienced firsthand. And he can't help but proclaim that to others. 
See, the psalmist was reflecting upon a song of God. And he has a song about God in his own heart that he's writing for us that we can do the same. He just couldn't help but record it for us. I think this song was also in the Apostle Paul's heart. Because when he was going through a tough circumstance in his life, when his ministry was being attacked, when he wrote the letter to the Second Corinthians to, def- to the Corinthian church, the letter of Second Corinthians to defend his ministry, and that famous passage where he's talking about jars of clay, these words just instantly come into his mind. Words from this song. Second Corinthians chapter four, uh, starting in verse seven, uh, says this: "But we have this treasure in jars of clay." To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, and here's the quote, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sakes that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Just like the psalmist believed and spoke, so David believes, and, or so Paul believes and he speaks, and he has a word for us as well. He has a song in his heart. Paul knows full well that the Lord is pleased to hear our pleas for mercy. But Paul also knows that the Lord doesn't always answer those according to our timeline and in this lifetime. This psalm makes no guarantee that if we're in a life-threatening situation and we cry out to the Lord that he will deliver us here in this life. And that's why I think the Apostle Paul takes it a step further. Paul believes and he can't help but speak in his hope in the resurrection of Christ, which is God's ultimate answer to our prayers for deliverance. God is pleased to hear our pleas for mercy. And he has ultimately answered them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If he's answered your prayers, if you know you've been delivered from death, then perhaps you've asked this next question, the question of the day in our psalm, starting in verse 12. And that question is, how can I repay the Lord? Excuse me. The psalmist will ask it this way. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? We stop and think about that. All that the Lord has done for us in delivering us from death, from being eternally separated from Him, and we ask ourselves, 
How could I ever repay the Lord for all that he has done for me? The Apostle Paul, perhaps reflecting on Job, chapter 41, verse 11, will say, probably a familiar passage to you in Romans, chapter 11, verses 35 through 36, who has given a gift to the Lord that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6, which we read earlier in our scripture reading, asks this question, do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Well, we certainly understand that in the strictest sense of the words, we cannot repay the Lord. There's no way to repay the Lord. Everything we have has come from Him in the first place. We'd only merely be giving it back to Him. So we certainly can't repay Him. Even more foolish than trying to repay someone with the things that they've given you is to try and repay someone for a debt that's already been paid. And so to repay the Lord for the debt that Jesus paid is as foolish as it gets. It's already been paid in full by Christ. So how are we to respond then? The question is not so much how can we repay the Lord, but how are we to respond to the gracious, righteous, and merciful God who has saved us? And I think we get a few things from verses 13 and 19. I think we glean a few different things that will help us think about that. First, and perhaps most obvious, we are to continue to call on the name of the Lord. It's a major theme in this psalm. It already occurred twice. Uh, Verse 4, he says, Then I called on the name of the Lord. And verse 2, backing up behind that, because God heard, he then says, I will call on him as long as I live. And we see it again in verse 13 and in verse 17. There's only one name that's above every name. And because there's only, and that's because there's only one God who is truly God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's only one God who's truly worthy of praise. So the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, when talking about Jesus, will say, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's only one name that's worthy of praise. There's only one name that if you call on it, really has the power to answer you. And so we call upon that name and we vow to continue to call upon that name and to never give up from calling upon this precious, precious name of our Lord Jesus. Secondly, we are to pay our vows to the Lord, which we see in verse 14 and 18. It says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in both of those. Uh, And then we are to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, which we see in verse 17. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. So secondly, we pay vows to the Lord and offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. Now, I don't want us to get lost in Old Testament sacrificial language here. I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. And I think we need to remember that even in the Old Testament, David said in Psalm 51, verse 17, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The author to the Hebrews uh, said of our Lord 
uh, in chapter 10, verses 5 and following. And really, he's quoting there Psalm 40, verses 6 and 8. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What our Lord means here by doing the will of God is simply our obedience. Out of thankful and heartfelt, as a thankful and heartfelt response to what God has done for us. Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 15 and 16, your additional scriptures, we'll talk about that more this way. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Listen to that language, offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. And it goes on, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Our sacrifices of praise are offering up to God praise to his name, acknowledging who he is, calling upon his name. The verse goes on, do not neglect to do, good, to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So as we look at these, this Old Testament sacrificial language in this song, we understand that here, secondly, God calls us to thankful obedience for all that he's done for us and to praise his name as the psalm closes in verse 19. Thirdly, we are to lift up or take the cup of salvation. And we see that here in verse 13 when the psalmist proclaims, I will lift up the cup of salvation. Now I think we need to take a big picture view here again. We just take a minute and talk about what this cup represents. We also need to take a look at uh, how this cup uh, and how this psalm was used in Old Testament Israel and in the life of God's people. When you look at the Old Testament, really all of Scripture, the Bible primarily talks about two cups. One would be a cup of wrath. The cup of the wrath of God for the unrighteous deeds of men, women, and children everywhere. You can think of that from Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, where God is threatening even Israel to pour out His wrath upon them for their great deeds of sinfulness. So we can think of, one, a cup of wrath. Secondly, we can think of a great cup of blessing, of a cup of redemption. Think the 23rd Psalm. Our cup runneth over. So the Bible pictures two cups primarily. And this psalm, like all of Psalms 113 through 118, were used in the Passover liturgy. So in the meal of God's people, his Old Testament people, when they sat down and had their uh, Old Covenant meal together, it was the Passover. And they did it as families, and they sang verses 113, or Psalm 113 and 114 before the meal. And then they went through an elaborate liturgy with all kinds of symbology to teach their children about God had, how God had redeemed them from Israel. And of course, in there, they, they had four cups of wine. We've talked about that here in the evening. It was quite a joyous celebration. And each of those cups represented something from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. Okay? Uh, they represented different aspects of that. Uh, and then after the meal, uh, they would sing Psalms 115 through 118. And so here we are again, just like last week, with Psalm 115 being sung after the meal. 
And here, this week, Psalm 116 also would have been sung after the meal. But what does that mean for us? Well, from the Gospel of John, we learn that Jesus, in his public ministry, was at four Passovers. And when he was at the last Passover of his public ministry, that is when he sat down with his disciples in an upper room. On the night when he was betrayed. And it was at that meal that he took bread and he broke it. And having given thanks, he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At that meal, likewise, he took the cup. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, it had come to fruition. So there is Jesus talking about this cup and the new covenant. And what does he then go do? Well, he goes to Gethsemane. He's arrested in the garden. He's put on trial. He carries his cross to Golgotha, and it's there that he is lifted up. It's there that he is crucified. It is there that he takes the cup of God's wrath that we deserve. And why does he do that? So that he can pour out the cup of blessing. The cup of the Lord's salvation that he earned upon his people who do not deserve it. It's in that night that Jesus takes the cup of wrath and gives us the cup of salvation. And this is the cup of salvation that the Lord is talking about here. That we are told in God's word to take. right? Not just lift it up. This is not talking about offering anything to God. This is talking about taking something from God out of the treasure and the storehouse of mercy and grace that is That is who God is. That will never run out. So we are encouraged to take this cup, to drink of it deeply. Fourth and lastly, and this is not so much another thing, uh, but this is more the primary place to do the first three. This is more the primary place to call upon the name of the Lord, although you should do that every day of your life and any time you're in trouble. Don't wait till you come to here. It's telling us this because this is the primary place where we learn about a life of obedience and how to praise the Lord, although you should be learning that everywhere and in every day of your life. And this is the primary place where we drink from that cup of salvation. We do that here both in hearing God's words preached, uh, in hearing Him call us to worship, in every element of worship, and in literally, particularly, in communion. So this last thing is not so much Another thing, but it's the primary place to do the first three, and that is in the presence of God's people. It's a refrain in verses 14, 18, and 19. Verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Verse 18 says the exact same thing, but it continues in verse 19. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. In a psalm where... Uh, There are so many I's, me's, and my's, they're difficult to count, if you didn't notice. Uh, 
And one, I didn't do the counting myself, uh, but one commentator had them written out. He said there are 18 I's in this psalm. There are nine my's and there are seven me's, at least that many me's in the NIV translation. Isn't it ironic the stress that's placed upon bringing that experience into the congregation of God's people and celebrating it here? This personal experience of deliverance is not meant to be kept to yourself. It's meant to be brought here into the congregation of God's people, into the house of God, into the church, so that we can praise His name together. So that we can, as the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Because we all understand that we go to the Lord and we plead for mercy all the time, and He is rich with mercy. But he does not always answer us right here and right now in the ways that we want. But chances are he's answering someone else in the congregation. And so we can seize upon that. We can be encouraged by that. And we can also point each other to the ultimate salvation in Jesus Christ. When all of our pleas for mercy will be answered. When we be delivered from death and tears and sickness and suffering once and forever. So we're called to bring that in here so that we can rejoice together as the people of God, so that we can do, as it says here, to close this psalm, which is a refrain in so many of these psalms, 113 through 118, to praise the Lord in these Egyptian Hallel psalms. So how do you repay the Lord for so great a salvation? Well, by giving back to God and others out of the good gifts that He's been pleased to give us, yes. But also, by coming to Him again and again and just asking for more. If you've truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as the psalmist said in Psalm 34, come back and taste some more. If you've truly tasted of the cup of salvation, come back and drink some more. It won't run out. There's more grace there for you. There's more grace for you this day. There's more grace for you tomorrow. There's more grace all the days of your lives. That cup of salvation is available to you Anytime you cry out to God in mercy. So we take his cup of salvation. We drink freely from it. We do that together as God's people. And we do it all to his great praise. Let's pray.